Welcome to Surviving Society. With Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society. We are really excited to be in the studio today with Laura Connolly, who is a lecturer in criminology at the University of Sheffield and part of the Northern Police Monitoring Project. Laura has written on the effects of criminalisation of sex work, Brexit and anti-racist scholar activism. And we're also joined by Remy Joseph Salisbury, who is Presidential Fellow at the University of Manchester and writes on racism and anti-racism in education and policing and is also part of the Northern Police Monitoring Project. Remy and Laura, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. This is so exciting because Remy and Laura have come down from Manchester today Mm. um, to talk to us about their new book, Anti-Racist Scholar Activism, which... Uh, it's just again like I think we've had a couple of episodes like this over the past month I feel really I don't know when I was reading the book I felt another I always feel really lucky to be able to talk to the authors of some of these amazing books but I had another wave of feelings just so grateful that this type of work gets produced and that we get to talk to people about it and I think there's a kind of consistent logical consistency to it to the people that have had on the past few weeks yeah like with Frank, Tenzel, yeah, yeah, like it makes yeah. sense, right? And, and and James as well, James, like yeah, yeah. people that write in a way that is so purposeful and passionate and like instructive of how we can create better, a better world, better society and what we can use the institutions or universities for and the limitations of that. This is such an amazing book. When we're reading books like this that are so, again, so instructive and so passionate, I'm like, where did this come from? As in, how did you, what was the process? I mean, you talk about it in the introduction, but for the purpose of the listeners and those that are going to buy the book, tell us about the journey into writing the book and where it came from. It's a bit of a, a kind of long time in the making, really. I guess the ideas first started when we were both doing our PhDs. So we were both doing our PhDs at Leeds at the same time. And we, I think, were always really frustrated by what we saw in, in academia, so we were, we you know we were studying in a department that had you know was known worldwide for having you know excellence around research in race and ethnicity and you know uh, world uh, world renowned centre for disability studies, but it felt always like there was a bit of a disconnect between um, what people were researching and like the the real world, and I think we were really frustrated that we were kind of unable to to navigate that bridge between you know research and and activism so we were kind of like grappling with how to 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 sort of navigate that um so it started there and then i guess as we sort of finished our phd's and started our um you know jobs the, we were having lots of conversations with people involved in activism working in act- academia and involved in activism i guess collectively we were starting to think through some of the ideas that you now see kind of fleshed out in in the book yeah so it started from a position of despair really and just frustration so disappointed uh, thinking academia is not what we came into it for just incredibly disappointing but then over time we found more and more people who were doing things in ways that we really admire. A lot of people that we've spoken to on the show actually are people we've admired and been influenced by and then even that department at Leeds we started to look at it in a bit more in a bit more of a complicated way where we could see there are actually people doing things at the edges but you really have to search for that that kind of um more critical even radical approach to being an academic. But the question I'm asking then myself is, what is an academic? What 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 does academic what does an academic do? Or or maybe a question is, how is a scholar an anti-racist scholar activist mm. different from an academic? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's it's tricky. One of the things that we try to do in the book. Um, is I think we tread a, a fine line between not having a really narrow definition of what a scholar activist is and how they differ from a you know traditional academic. Mm-hmm. 
because I think when you when you define scholar activism really narrowly, that's when you end up kind of like prioritizing really idealized notions of activism. And those idealized notions are often quite sort of masculine and confrontational forms of activism, frontline forms of activism. So we wanted to make sure that we weren't doing that. But then equally, if you have a really broad definition or understanding of what scholar activism is, um, then I think it loses some of its kind of definitional clarity, doesn't it? It becomes just like a vacuous term that everyone's using. And I think it's then when like you start to see institutions co-opting these sorts of terms and, and profiting off them, much like they've done with, you know, like decolonization or something like that. Yeah, I think we we start with a definition influenced by Patricia Hill Collins, who talks about... Um, she talks about intellectual activists who combine their research and academic practice with uh, what they do outside of or across the borders of um, the university and wider communities in service of social justice. And of course, even in this conversation, setting up this kind of artificial boundary between the university and the outside, and we know that that boundary is not, it's a falsehood in many ways. There's people moving in and out and students from these communities are coming into the universities. So um, I think it's important that we're critical of that idea of a university in and outside, but also some ways it's a easy way into thinking about the relationship with the university and other institutions and communities. Thank you for mentioning um, Patricia Hill Collins there, Remy, because we're big, obviously big fans of Patricia Hill Collins on this show. And I think I'm going to read out, actually, a section from the book where you are quite clear in who has inspired your definition of anti-racist scholar activism. We adopt scholar activism in an expansive sense in order to capture something of the essence of a range of related terms, including Patricia Hill Collins' intellectual activist, Walter Rodney's guerrilla intellectual, Stefano Harney and, and Fred Moten's subversive intellectual, and a range of variants including activist scholar, academic activist, and activist academic. We use the expansive term scholar activism to also capture the even more subtle distinctions that are drawn, often not through punctuation, to signify different ethnicists. It's just, I, for me, it's really clear. And I think if you were to engage in a debate with someone about what you think of anti-racist scholar activism... I think you couldn't really engage with them unless they've read or um, read those people. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. even though I think that you're really clear about what you're trying to say in this book, I think that one of the real, one of the amazing things you've done is really embedded what you're saying within existing literature. I know that's something that we do as academics anyway, but you're really clear on it. And yeah. I think that, okay, like we can talk about, and you do in the book, the nuances and the limitations of a praxis of um, anti-racist scholar activism. But if you're going to do that, talk to me about all the people that have inspired our definition of this. Yeah. I, I think anything up that goes beyond that is just not good faith because you haven't understood what the project is. That's it. And it, it's a politics of citation, isn't it? It's yes. about respecting what's gone before you. And I think, you know, in academia, we're often um, pushed into or feel obliged to talk about how our work is new or original. Um, but what we try to do in the book is show that, yeah, there's this kind of upswell in, in debates and conversations around scholar activism. Um, but it isn't new. There's a long and rich lineage and, and history. And, and, and that's why we try to really ground what we're saying in that kind of historical literature um, well, historical and contemporary literature. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we also try to draw a lot on thinkers who are not been part of the academy. You know, they're intellectuals, they're scholar activists, but they're operating in other spaces. And perhaps because of that, they're coming up with some of the most incisive ideas. And our book is specifically focused on those working in the university. But even though we take that focus, we really want to and hopefully do emphasize throughout that scholar activism is not just about those in the academy it's you know it can occur in all kinds of spaces community spaces we draw a lot on Sivan Anden who did his work from within the Institute of Race Relations and that is you know that work is a huge influence on the ideas that we uh, articulate in the book. The relationship between the outside the inside of the university so the outside the inside it's kind of an interesting relationship so 
I was trying to kind of, would you kind of explain that to me a bit more? Because like I said, when you're, I guess when you're working inside an institution, there's certain things expected of you, right? And, but then you're trying to relate into the outside, the real world, but academia doesn't see itself or it doesn't position itself as that normally. And yeah, and I guess just to follow up on that, um, in answering T's question, there are lots of people that listen to this show that aren't academics that yeah. sometimes I think struggle to understand what we mean by like do, doing this work. Like how actually a lot of people we know, a lot of people that come on the show do do a lot of work outside of the institution or like you talk about in the book, extract from the institution in order to put it into yeah. um, community organisations, social movements, etc. Yeah. So I, I think there are a lot of institutional pressures on academics Um particularly in the neoliberal university, pressures to publish in certain kinds of spaces and in certain kinds of ways. Um, And those pressures are felt more acutely by some than others, those who are more precarious for whatever reason, and that's shaped by race and class and gender and a whole range of factors, as you, of course, know. But those pressures place limits or threaten to place limits on the kinds of work that we would like to prioritise, you know, the kinds of work that feeding into social movements, feeding into the fight for social and racial justice. Um, And there's, you know, the kind of pressures of surveillance as well and the monitoring that particularly felt by Muslim academics, academics of colour, um, so there's a whole range of pressures in the university, pushes in certain directions and what we try to think through in the book is how and when we can push back and attempt to push the university in the direction we think it should move or at least find some space in the university to do the work that we want to do. And in writing the book, our position changed several times it's been shaped by people like yourself who've looked at it and give us feedback and a whole range of people that have read chapters and really really pushed our thinking i think we started with quite a blunt idea about the university being absolutely hopeless and you know that that position still needs still needs thinking through but we were pushed by people like Luke de Naranjas, Scarlett Harris, Manny Madriaga, who suggest, who asked, why are you in the university if it's so hopeless? And that took us to thinking more critically and recognising that perhaps there are some spaces and pockets of opportunity that we can uh, kind of manipulate and use in service to the communities we work yeah. with. I think that's a really interesting point. The, and how people that read that read through um, earlier drafts like responded to you because I think it's something that I struggle with almost like on a, a week by week basis like I do work that looks at how we can widen participation but I do it in a very kind of comfortable way but equally I try I try to be critical in how I'm doing that and thinking about it in terms of inclusivity and democratization but equally I'm constantly like what are we what are we widening this for like it's not it's so often not safe and it's so often built on um exploitative practices like what is it for like i think not just the not just the universities i think institutions in general right mm-hmm. we all need money but you're all going to have to work for someone and that mm-hmm. involves a compromise right because these institutions are fuckeries basically yeah. right mm-hmm. so so how transformative can you be within an institution. Basically, I used to work in the, working for corporate finance, right? So the idea was financing multinational companies, which we know have bad practices, and the bank would let them off millions, 300 And the banks obviously come about through slavery. Yeah, yeah so th- working in an institution, I, was I helping people? I was literally helping someone, but through a very kind of, I don't know, almost obsequious, dirty little process. And you're part of that, right? I'm part of that process. So even though I know I'm helping someone, there is some kind of involvement. Well, yeah, in who this. are you helping? You're helping yeah. the, yeah. I'm, I'm helping them make lots of money. Yeah. And I'm, make, I'm helping myself as well, so. And I think, just come bringing it back to the university, I think this kind of feeling uncomfortable um, and also trying to, what, what are the pockets of hope? Like, what are the pockets of things that we can do for our community and helping um, social movements, resistance? It reminds me of when we were talking to 
we were on a panel not not long ago with Gaminda and I was in a I honestly change my position on this all the time which I'm sure you guys do which I think comes through in the book and I was on the panel with Gaminda and I was like literally like fuck the university like um, I just don't think that the best knowledge comes out of the university I think it comes mm-hmm. outside the university and like Gaminda challenged me on it sorry this is Gaminda Bamber she challenged me on it on the panel she was like we have to make a case for knowledge for knowledge knowledge's sake like that has always been something that has existed within social movements within global histories of resistance and she gave the example of how we have to try lots of different things in order to produce a type of knowledge production that is in itself radical and can be transformative and she gave the example of um Du Bois and like how many different things Du Bois did throughout his whole career like trying over and over again trying different things over Mm. and over again different ways of intervening over and over again in order to make life more livable for the most marginalised through his practice practice of knowledge production for his practice of yeah academic scholarship and that's what I think comes across in your book as well it's like and particularly with the manifesto which I hope we're going to talk about is that there is not one way to do this. We have to try lots mm-hmm. of different things all at once. And all those things might not work. So when we try something else. Yeah, yeah, I think that's it. And you're right. We, we do go back and forward on this a lot. So sometimes I think we feel really despondent about working in a university. And, you know, especially when you kind of get sometimes find yourself caught up in some of the like bureaucracy of the university. You start thinking, you know, wh- why am I wasting my time here? It's of no use to any of the groups that I work with or the communities that I work with. But I think that the in the book, we try to kind of have a cautious optimism and we try to identify some of those pockets of possibility or hope that the university can offer, like the things that you can leverage from the university to help either the community groups that you're working within or just anti-racist movements more broadly. So things like, you know, using our resources, whether that's like material resources, so like tapping into those like um, uh, social responsibility funds or impact funds that you can use for your like activism, uh, or whether it's more like using your social status as an academic to like, uh, you know, for some benefit for your communities of, of resistance. And I guess, I guess for lots of the people that we interviewed, the, the university isn't like, the only or, or the main site of their resistance. So it can often, you know, for lots of the people we interviewed, it's a paycheck that then, you know, funds some of their activist work in communities. And for others, you know, the university is more central to their resistance and they see their resistance like in the classroom or through union organizing. So I think, you know, one of the one of the things that really struck me when we were interviewing people for this book is that that there isn't one way of doing scholar activism just like you said it is really diverse and people use the university in so many different different ways um to the to the benefit of you know the groups that they're working with why do you think that we've got into a space particularly amongst i mean we on this show we call it kind of our broad coalitions so like loads of us so thinking about our yeah broad coalitions of people that agree on most things but kind of differ and depart on the particularities but those particularities as we know take up a lot of space Mm. in terms of how we are able to be in solidarity with each other why do you think it is that we find it so hard to remove ourselves from being descriptive about how one should do anti-racism or activism like what do you think it is do you think it's because do you think it's because people are frustrated that we're not able to to move through like i mean let's let's say what we talk about on the show at the moment like we're in a crisis as a, a as a global movement in terms of thinking about the left like are very fractured but there are even those of us that i think are within our broad coalitions i'm always like guys like just understand in, in terms of what you talk about in the book where people are starting from like people mm. are starting from different places like why is it that we find it so hard to to be to revert from being entirely prescriptive about how we should do things yeah. it's a good question it's one we grapple with a lot I think part of it is we're under pressure, right? We're on the back foot. There are material conditions at stake. We are under threat um, or we're working with and for communities that are under threat. So things are fraught. And as a consequence of that, there's sometimes a lack of political generosity. Mm-hmm. And I think there's, there's a lot to be said for us to really try to find that where possible. We're impatient and we want justice now. We, we want it 
we want it right now, but we have to think about bringing people along with us and how have understanding for where people are coming from. And I've heard you talk about this on the podcast, Chantel, how much your own thinking has changed. And it always strikes me because I think my thinking has changed in similar ways to yours over a similar period of time. When I look back at some of the things I was thinking and saying just a few years ago, I would struggle now not to be very frustrated with a me of three years ago. Look at yourself with that sense of frustration. That should be a clear indicator that we're all in motion and we have to recognise that. Having uh, some generosity and understanding we're all incomplete is really important. And again, one of the ideas that we try to think through is challenging this idea of purity. A lot of the people we spoke to emphasised we're we cannot we can't be pure we're full of contradictions we're working in contradictory spaces we have to make compromises i think chipping away at these uh, notions of purity is really important for us all and if we all recognize that we're impure and others are then we can start from a more productive position and part of this you know with with writing this book i think um just the title of it will get some people's backs up and they will perceive it as being kind of us saying, this is the right way to do it. You know, we, we've figured it out, but it's really not supposed to be like that. It's us going on this journey and thinking it through and looking at the people That's why we I preempted. Admire. That's why I preempted the critiques. I'm like, listen, I like the title, but like, if you don't like the title, that means you haven't engaged. Like, yeah. do you know what I mean? Like, it's... it's I, I think I, some people won't even pick it up because they think it'll be kind of preaching like it has to be this way and there's I, I guess there's a bit of that we want to push things in a certain direction and encourage people to um think differently about academia but also we try to position ourselves as incomplete and thinking this through still ourselves i don't know i think people have problems with the idea of these it's concepts that exist right so we live in a impure world right mm -hmm. but we live in a capitalist society but some would take an anti-capitalist position. Yeah. So some, so people think, how how can you reconcile those two positions? Because you wear name brand clothes, you live in a house, you have, you do all these things which are benefits or yeah benefits of living in a capitalist society. Mm. So people people get more people get frustrated. With people saying, how can you reconcile these positions? You seem like a hypocrite. Yeah. And I guess that's the charge people will kind of live at people. And in the like university context, you know, we we shouldn't we shouldn't recon reconcile those tensions. I mean, we should be deeply uncomfortable with working in a university. You know, as you said before, you know, universities are active reproducers of all the inequalities that you know us involved in activism as academics try to tackle try to fight against but we're propping up that system we're legitimizing processes like ref and tef and all of those things we know harm our colleagues and harm our students just to be clear laura sorry for the listeners so ref and tef can you say what they are just yeah broad, yeah broad, so broadly. ref is a research excellence framework it it kind of functions to prescribe what is so-called good research. Um, so it really shapes people's research agendas. The, the impact agenda is really kind of relevant to, to the book because, you know, um, within REF, it encourages academics to work with um, individuals or groups to try and enact some kind of change. But we're quite critical of the institutionalised version of impact. Mm -hmm. um, I think a activist version of impact is very different. Uh, and TEF is one of the sort of teaching metrics that's often used to try and, again, judge so-called good teaching, which, you know, there's loads of evidence to suggest promotes kind of like undemocratic forms of learning. It, it encourages hierarchies between teachers and learners. It promotes uh, notions of like consumer and producer. So these are like really harmful things within academia that we prop up by virtue of being an academic mm -hmm. so that's why in the book we talk about how you know we shouldn't be comfortable with that but equally we shouldn't just sort of let that um discomfort cause us to um i don't know just be sort of sort of feel guilty and and kind of um immobilized by that guilt but rather we should use it constructively to try and um put that kind of complicity to work in service to the, the communities of resistance that we work with. Yeah, so this question that's kind of un underlying a lot of what we're talking about, 
are we doing more harm than good? We want to make the case that that's a productive question. As Laura's saying, it shouldn't stifle us, it shouldn't lead us to inaction. But there's something productive about that questioning and, and reflexivity that I think we should cling on to. And a few of the people we spoke to as part of the book have, have since left academia and are, the, are doing things outside of the academy. And I think we should all be open to the possibility of at some point having to leave the university to do things in other spaces that might be more productive. I'm not, not saying we have to leave. I'm At the moment, I feel like I'm able to leverage... Uh, resources out of the university, work with students in particular ways and use some of the power of the university in ways that I think are productive. But to be uh, open to the possibility that things might be better elsewhere, I think is a good position for us all to take. This is weird, Remy, because this is what, after we were, after read the book, is the first thing T said to me. Yeah, so said, you've got to leave then. Ultimately... I, for my own personal experience, working in in any institution, there's a limit. There's yeah. a, it will get to that limit. Now, as, as transformative as, as I can be, so at, at my most tra- at my most radical, I try to set up a, a kind of um, divert resources from from the bank to help kids in the East End, and that worked for a while. And it was a pain in the ass. And it's like like all the things you mentioned in the book. There's extra man hours, things you don't see. There's a kind of a blow to my credibility within the organisation, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But there's a limit, mm. and what people kind of I think what people miss out is the things like about human things that we don't talk about, like desire. Mm. My desire to help people help, help made me overcome these hurdles. Mm. But desire is something that is kind of it's limited. It gets you get tired, and so one time, so it's the only way I could do what I want to do was by actually leaving the institution because the limits on there were too great. Because this thing is massive and i think as well like in the institution like when you're trying to do when you're trying to do what you talk about in the book like reparative theft or you're trying to extract from the institution the the kind of negotiation of doing that is like so debilitating like i know obviously it's more debilitating to be materially economically and socially like marginalized and deprived but just come into the actual process of doing scholar activism extracting like you really see the ugly side of people in general and the ugly side of of structures when you're trying to do stuff for people outside of or you're trying to take stuff from the institution and put it outside of and I just can't believe how protective some people are of these fucking buildings and mm. these fucking spaces. Like, I just want a room to bring people in. Why are you making it so hard? But, like, <laughs> but what I understand is those spaces, like the more I try to help people on the outside, it, it, became, it created the inverse situation. I was more embedded in the institution than the people, mm. I, the places where I wanted to help. Oh, and because you could become like a well, you, you, gatekeeper. Or yeah, or? you're trying to negotiate these things, but you're not spending the time with the people that matter that you're trying to help because mm. that takes you away from the institution, right? But maybe this is part of the, maybe, you, and again, this comes back to the book, like understanding the anti-racist scholar activists as part of a, not as an individual, but as a coalition of people. And maybe th- that person you're talking about that doesn't actually get to do that much work with the people outside of, that's their role. That's their part of it. Do you know what I mean? So like yeah, maybe, that in maybe. itself is, serve, like, is serving a purpose yeah. um, that but- we have to be embracing of. Like you can't be... If you're an anti-racist scholar activist, it doesn't necessarily mean you're you're on the ground. Actually, maybe you're doing the bit of taking out of the institution and giving it to the scholar activist that's going to be in the I, 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 in the organisation or within the community. I don't. I just feel like as time goes on, you see things differently, and as time goes on in my life, I don't think these institutions are going to help us in any way, shape, or form. Just given my historical run and my experience. I just understand that the, by definition, they tend to be conservative with a small c and they have entrenched power. But there is there is incremental changes that can happen within these spaces and they can be radical and transformative. So it's not to dismiss, dismiss them out of hand, but I find it very difficult. Well, I no, no, no I, I hear you totally. And I think that's why we talk about it. there just being pockets of possibility. Mm-hmm. There are just these little tiny pockets every now and again. You know, Darren Webb talks about breathing spaces in the, in the university. You know, they, these are often very few and far between. T, you're you're hating the institution at the moment, aren't you? How are you feeling about no, it? Sometimes, I, no, because I feel like I've heard you say 
like and this is this is part of what we're talking the conversation part mm. of the book mm. i feel like i've heard you say the opposite of that on this show of what you just said what's that but that in itself is interesting you don't think these institutions can do anything across the board yeah i think that i think that's across the board not just any just my personal experience yeah yeah no i know and, but i feel like i've heard you say something i feel like I've no heard no you. i just i this is just like i said this from my own personal experience no i know i know but, i know but i'm, I'm saying how it changed you how you i don't how think things... I've, i don't think i changed like whenever i worked in the bank like i said when i worked in the but bank talk about the institute but talk about the university and but even the university like yeah. i said there is possibilities and i can mm. understand that but when i've when i've sat there and i thought about it and i've looked at life and stuff like the reason why I'm doing my research is because I care about my ends, right? Yeah. But, but the research has given me the ability to sit in the ends more. Mm. And I'm writing about the ends and because I, I care about it. Mm. Again, like this is why this book is so good because it's like, it's a, it's a, it's, it's Patricia Hill Collins. It's like, it's knowledge, it's dialogical. Like it's thinking through, it's not being certain. It's like, I, there are pockets, as Laura's just said, but, then, but also there are so many contradictions. And this is why we're a threat to like right wing academics because yeah. they're like, and there's so many, and obviously they're all coming, they're coming thick and fast now in their whole like just populist and bad faith arguments about, not even arguments, statements about critical race theory, et cetera. Like we're threatening to them because we are very comfortable in the uncertainty of social life and our praxis. Mm. And they say that that isn't that isn't what a scholar or an, or an academic should be. And like you're saying in the book, no, that is what we should be. And yeah. I think that's what I was so threatening about us was we're okay to be vulnerable. Like we're being vulnerable. Yeah, I think that's right. And you're asking T if he's if his position has shifted on that, and that's very much the case for me. I'm conscious doing this today that at this very moment I. I'm feeling a little bit like the university is hopeless, but I know last week I was maybe doing things that I felt were productive and there's sense in me being there. And next week, my position will probably shift a little bit again, depending on what's going on at that time. But we should be comfortable in that. We should resist simplifying things and the university is changing, we're changing. And thinking that through collectively, is is a process that we should cherish. And one of the ideas that we think through is this idea that you should struggle where you are, that we take from Stuart Hall. Um, I think David Gilborn picked it up from Stuart Hall. That It's one of those that Stuart Hall, I think, just said it as a kind of throwaway comment, but it's Stuart Hall. And when you look at it, there's something really, really valuable in there. And... Walter Rodney says something similar about this idea that we should struggle where you are. And there's several reasons we think that is important. But one is it allows us to position ourselves within a much broader movement. So if we just do the little bit that we can do within the university and people in the arts are doing the little bit that they can do from where they are and, you know, even people possibly in local councils and uh in the criminal, in, in lawyers and, you know, activist lawyers, if we're all struggling in our different spaces collectively, then that's how we we have more influence. It's not just about us being the saviours as individual academics. And, you know, as you, you're coming up as a young activist, or me at least, you kind of think, oh, I can do it all. I'm going to change the world. But that's a really... Uh, <laughs> You're destined to be disappointed if you if you take oh, that position, and you're also going to be unproductive. To you know, you're not going to be working in solidarity with other people. So, this idea I think allows us to. I want to say have more realistic expectations, but I'll caveat that by also saying we should be utopian as well. When, when we the, dis- the disappointment, rep, like I just when you talked about the disappointment, I felt it, and obviously, like as everyone, as the listeners know, um, this podcast is an intergenerational podcast because of the age gap between me and Tiso. So Tiso had to watch me go through my twenties, like heartbreak after heartbreak and he's like see see listen, I told listen, you listen you know what it is right when I see people coming out I see mad, the mad energy the mad hope yeah and I think as you get old you see you see, you can see it right when you see people who are motivated uh, engines of change so I think like Megha Evers Malcolm X and Martin Luther King all died before they were 40 mm. these young men Franz Fanon died when he's 36 that's where the energy is that's where the hope is and I see when I read I can see that hope working institution and the optimism, the hope for change, and that's important, man. 
these are important concepts. Hope is an important concept, man, because it motivates you to do better, to change society. And that's what you need now, especially in, at a time like this where we're so polarized. Just by definition, we're all, everyone in this room is going to become conservative with a small C. Do you think? A hundred percent. No, but listen, not me. Listen, when I, when <laughs> I research in drill music, I'm just realizing I've aged. My time's frozen in time. And just, and just by definition, some things I've just become reactionary. Not because I've been horrible, just because I've just got older and my positions change and I've, my values have changed. But then I do feel like, I feel, and I think you talk, I think you talk about this a bit in the book as well, like... What you're saying, T, I do, I do hear you, but equally, I think you're, I think you are, and I know you're, you're getting older, but you are still pretty radical, like, as no, in, no, I, as I, in. I, it, it definitely, there is a radicalness where it comes, like I said, reading your book, I can see stuff, but equally, there's a tension now where I've slowed down and there's things that, like I said, things that you'd never really thought, they, they, so, they kind of creep up on you. So maybe the, the point is that we have to, and this is, comes back to the episode we had with um, Stephen Roberts on the show, like, it's about dispelling that generational myth that you have to become conservative as small c. No, no, no. Like, right, so what happens is, is what's important, I think, is that having debates with yourselves, talking about it, changing, speaking to people who are in it. So the, when you talk about the question in the book about embeddedness, mm. right, mm-hmm. how embedded can one be? So when I'm researching Drew, I realise I'm 44. I can't be really embedded. <laughs> I can't be. It doesn't matter how much I try to push myself. Like, I went to a rave the other day and I felt at a place, a place where I used to think I was in place. So time has just moved me on. So the only way I can understand or be embedded is to speak to people like yourselves yeah. and try to and read your book and try to understand what that means. I think with that idea of embeddedness, it's a, it's a good point you make. I don't think it means we have to be down with the kids, so to speak, absolutely at the heart of everything, but that we're in dialogue with the... Um, communities that we want to work with and for and it shouldn't be taken in any absolute sense that you know we we have to be the people that are most feeling the pain we should have a politics of solidarity where we can all work in service to social justice so I think it's about building dialogue and being in contact with and connected to social movements or affected communities on the small C conservatism it's an interesting point I've thought about this my dad always says to me you know you're going to become more conservative as you get older and Remy I want to resist Remy that Remy said dad Remy said dad in your trust that's true man it's true true sorry 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 my footy up there man sorry Remy carry on I think it's what elders like T say often say isn't it I'm T but I remain unconvinced. I hope this is not the case. I really, really want to resist that. <laughs> One thing I, I do think is a danger that relates to this is that we become institutionalised um, and that institutionalization might push us towards being more conservative with a small c. And this is why I think that question, continually grappling, grappling with the question of whether we're doing more harm than good, is important because it allows us to resist that institutionalization and becoming too comfortable. And coming just quickly before you come in, Laura, just coming back to what Remy just said in response to UT, and this is why I'm resistant to what you're saying, is because I know you can't be institutionalized. I know you can't be. Like, and you're, and, but you're, and do you know what I mean? I know you can't be, and I'm happy to go on record saying that. And that is because I feel like you do have the radical fire in your belly, even though you're, I think, as in, I don't think it has to go with age. To be clear, it's not that the radical fire disappears. It just changes. Mm. It just changes. Mm. But, but I think as you get older, you understand the limits of certain systems and you look for places where your radicalism can be put to better use. Yeah. So when you're in a system in your 20s and 30s, because you have to go through that because Maz is looking for a career because that's what you've been conditioned to do. Mm-hmm. So everyone in this room is going to go through the same processes. The heartbreak, the doing of doing yes sirs, no sirs, sometimes doing stuff that you don't really want to do, but you're going to do it anyway. And with a smile, because that's the system, because you're in a wage capitalist system. But you kind of work through that. So when I look at my elders now, who are 60, 70, and they've come at the other end, they'll tell you all the stuff that I'm telling you. And I and it and you sit there and we'll sit there and just like when you see a ten year old and they'll, you're going to say to a ten year old when you get to secondary school this is going to happen to them 
and they're going to tell you no. Yeah. But, then, but you're, you're going to say to them, right? But yeah. you know it's going to happen. There is this danger of becoming institutionalised and I think this is why you've got to always kind of keep asking yourself these questions and being reflexive. So, you know, something else that some of the people we interviewed were talking a lot about was how it can be useful sometimes to know that system and play that system. So, you know, in, in academia, knowing how to play the game. So, you know, ticking off that you need, you know, to publish or you need to bring in grant money and things like that and tick those things off to keep the wolf from your door so you can get on with the real work, which is your activism. Um, and, you know, others talk about how they play this system in terms of like, um, you know, taking on this appearance of like an objective academic, because that can again be beneficial to the, the groups or the communities that you're working with. But at the same time, taking on those roles and trying to play the system, you're legitimising those processes, aren't you? Perpetuating this idea of the university as like the legitimate space from which knowledge derives and uh, you're positioning yourself as, as um, yeah, like the, the, the le legitimate knowledge producer. Yeah. And you're like legitimising these processes like, you know, REF, which I mentioned before. Um, so it can be really harmful at the same time as having these kind of like productive elements to it that can be beneficial to the, the people or the groups that you're working with. So I think we've got to be really, really careful because that's a fine line to tread, isn't it, between like using the institution and your status for the benefit um, of anti-racist movements but not tipping over into becoming in institutionalised. Yeah. And this is, and this, I think, Laura, that's such a good point. And I think, like, this is how I feel sometimes when you get that. Another version of the heartbreak is when you find out that people aren't who they say they are. Like, particularly thinking about our broad coalitions and people that we think are scholar activists when actually they're not. They're just reproducing, like, the neoliberal terrain is actually very much a self-serving individualized project and look i mean maybe part of freedom is that they're able to do that maybe that is maybe that is part of freedom i don't know but it, that is another part of the heartbreak i think like we can talk about the heartbreak i in like terms the heartbreak the disenchantment why t's the bad place in terms of play garden at the moment no, we have not got the, the hope it's the end of the year i've not got the hope no, i'm not feeling the hope no no it's a disenchantment I'm, I'm hopeful, but what I'm talking about, what's interesting is, is that when I'm talking about, when you're, when you're explaining stuff, it's, it's that, it's that dance that we all, well, not we all do, that some people do with, the, with these institutions. You really want to help people, but you're in a kind of conflicted situation. Yeah, but I'm talking about, and, in her, in, now I'm talking about like the, it be your own people. So people that you think are yeah. on your side and, so, and they're so, not. But in that dance, you're going to meet lots of people along the way. Sometimes these might be your allies, but they, they're driven, they're motivated by different things, mm. even though they're on your side. And when you realise, they're thinking, oh, the disenchantment, the hurt that it causes. Because yeah. you're emotionally involved because you're putting a lot of time and effort in this. Mm. But this is that process, man. And I, like I said to you, from my position, it's just, it's just from experience now. You do this dance, man, mm. and you're going to meet people who are your allies, but their motivations and desires are different. Mm. You have the same overall goal, but their their path to get that is they might be stabbing you in the back. Mm. Who the fuck knows, yeah. man? We, we, I think something that we've found really productive is finding your your people, finding like your network, and often that you have to look outside of your institution mm. for that. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you have to look outside of the academy for that. Um, That's in the manifesto. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, I think you will get all these kinds of backlashes as a, you know, someone working on anti-racist work, someone who has got this kind of scholar activist orientation. You you will get backlash from, you know, colleagues from your institutions, from your managers. But I think you know one of the ways that you can protect yourself is to find your networks, your support networks, and. You know, that's lots of the people we interviewed spoke about how important that is. And it was really important for us in terms of the book. So, you know, we mentioned before that you looked at a chapter and was just one of the like crit crit critical friends that like really pushed us in terms of our thinking. And, you know, the book is kind of like collective in loads of ways because, you know, some of the ideas that are in there, you can't even trace them to their source because they come from the, the networks, the scholar activist networks that we're involved in. Yeah. Um it feels kind of cliche to say that it's a collective endeavor, but we've we've said it this a lot, funny. and it, it is impossible to trace. You know, some of the conversations would be sitting in a pub with Patrick Williams for like five hours, and 
you know, you just be talking over the course of an evening and some of those ideas find their way into your thinking and there's just so many conversations, some more formal, a lot of them informal, uh, that, that shape the way you think and the journey you go on. So, And, and that will continue. You know, we, we, we will look back at this book in five years or maybe even in six months and think, oh, my position on that has changed. And I think it, it's good to say that's okay. We wrote this at a particular moment in time and maybe, I, hopefully it doesn't change in the small C direction, <laughs> but... Um, no. What I quite like about the book and it shows you the possibility of dreaming beyond the institution, dreaming beyond these things that exist, dreaming, so that pushes against the kind of conservatism of a small C. So how you spoke about the book being written, the idea that that challenges the idea of this kind of individualized this process, like these two people wrote this book. No, it's mm-hmm. a collaborative process. And that's kind of transforms it in itself. That knowledge is not a thing that one person produces or it becomes canonized. It's a web that links the institution to society and vice versa. And I think that's important. And that, that kind of puts a seize to challenge conservatism. That kind of pushes back. So it's that kind of, it's that dialectic that you have going on there between the way you sort of think and the way you're kind of dealing with the institution. And I think that's important, but that's the dance that some people are involved in. Some people are not. I think I think one of the things as well, and I know I obviously spoke to you guys about this when you were writing the book, but one of the things that is also really hard to grapple with and is like a massive tension is like, we constantly want to be resisting like the individual neoliberal academic. We want to think collectively, but like who there, there's still like this hierarchy within that. And I'm, I'm thinking about um, a paper that we wrote recently based on the work that we've done in surviving society and how we want it to always not be seen as like a, a project that is just mine and Tiso's face. But even though that there's something that we, we have to kind of engage in that, in a way to do what Stuart Hall says about bringing, like getting more people to engage with education more broadly. How do we resist the individual whilst also recognising how our work can be co-opted and how our, like, how do we find ways to not fully invest ourselves in being cited or being acknowledged whilst also like how much that sort of hierarchy like still exists like it's so hard and like I constantly have to think about like I, I don't spend loads of time thinking about this myself but I think more about other people like I don't need I don't need that but I know some people do and it's kind of like engaging in these like human behaviors and like again like we want to we want to present things as collectivized. We want to present things as something we all do together. But like, again, you talk about in the book, like who gets positioned as the authority in that and like who gets rewarded for that stuff. And it is always is a typification of who gets that. I think it's really hard. And I, yeah, I don't think I haven't, I don't think it's necessarily a question, but more a, a provocation. It's okay us sitting here and saying it's a collective endeavor. It's important to say that it, it, it was, but we have to recognise it's our names on the front of the book and it's our, we're going to hit our targets in the research excellence framework. It's our careers that potentially will benefit from it. So we have to, again, we're caught up in these contradictions and we have to play the game to a certain extent. Perhaps maybe we don't have to play the game. Again, these are the questions. Quite a a few of the people that we interviewed talked about this, this idea of like, um, you know, it being really uncomfortable that that our um, academic reputations can be built off the the backs of the the groups that we're organising in. And I think this is, you know, particularly the case, not so much with with this book, but, you know, some of the other work that, that we're doing, you know, you're it's your name that's on that paper and you're getting the the kind of rewards from that. Um, but the ideas come from, you know, people who are not involved in academia. So you're kind of like always grappling with that tension, you know, you're profiting in either like financial ways or in terms of like growing your social status from, from others. And that can be really uncomfortable. I, I guess it's a cultural thing. I don't think we have to realise that where we're born, we're born into this, right? So there's not much you can do about that process. The only people I know, for example, the Sand tribe in Southern Africa, they have an idea that you don't recognise anyone. So if someone goes out and commits a kill, whether it's a man or woman, they they, they don't offer any praise to anyone because there's no recognition. But that's impossible to have in our society, in a society that we exploit everything. 
So it's hard to take that position here. So we have to recognize the uncomfortability that it is about the individual. <laughs> like mm. that's part of the process, right? Mm. But how do you how do you how do you feel comfortable with that? How you deal with that? That's the issue, right? How you reconcile that? The only way that I'm just thinking interpersonally and personally here. The only way that I can see is just by trying to constantly be resistant to individualized praise of quote unquote scholar activism and just you know just doing it like dialogically, mm. just saying, listen, yeah, thank you, but it's not me. It's not just me. Yeah, and no. I think you do that throughout the whole book. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I hope we do. Honestly, yeah, from, um, the, from page one, you do it. Like, it's it's not, it doesn't, I wasn't, also, I wasn't saying that because of you guys writing the book. I was saying that mm. more within thinking about our broad coalitions. Yeah, like, yeah. who, what happens? Like, what sort of gendered and racialized and class issues come about in how we think about anti-racist scholar activism? And it is, yeah. Yeah, I think that's super important. And I think that's why, you know, going back to that point about, trying to have a fairly broad definition of scholar activism is really important because I think, you know, lots of the lots of the activism that, that people are involved in is, is often quite invisible. Uh, it happens behind the scenes and I think that that is often itself structured by, like, race and class and gender and things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why we really wanted to resist just thinking about activism as those like really in your face, like masculine frontline forms to thinking about that invisible stuff that goes on behind the scenes, which is often the work that's undertaken, um, you know, by women and often in, you know, anti-racist stuff by black black women. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, Becky Clark and Patrick Williams and, and Catherine Chadwick talk about, um, talk about this in terms of just like being there, you know, bearing witness and being there and sometimes that's really important it's not it doesn't always have to be you know really in your face forms of activism it can be just being that shoulder to cry on that relational stuff just clearing up after an activist event or booking a room these really tiny things that you know you kind of don't even think of as activism but are really important for the community groups that we're organizing in Guys, thank you so much for coming on the show. Everyone needs to get anti-racist scholar activism. Um, obviously, we bring on, um, get, invite guests on the show that we like and we're interested in. We're um, fans. We're, and we're fans. <laughs> but this book, I do really feel like it's up there in terms of being like a necessity for anyone that's doing anti-racist, anti-racist work within and beyond the academy. Like I really think, and, and not even because of the words and what you say in it, but also the sort of citational practice as well in terms of people having an introduction to some of the key intellectuals that shape our thinking it's just really really powerful like i was thinking i was like fuck i need to read more i, yeah, I always read that i always read that i need to read more definitely anyway thank you so much for joining us and listeners we'll be back again next week bye thank you bye thank you for listening to surviving society with Chantal and tiso you can now continue the conversation with us on twitter and instagram If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. 